This morning, uh, we're going to talk about talking with others about our faith. Decided to call this talking about Jesus without being weird. In Acts chapter 1, we read that Jesus says to his disciples, as you'll be my witnesses, be telling people everywhere about me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And they didn't even know where the ends of the earth were at that point. And the question for this morning for us is how do we tell others about Jesus in this cultural moment, in this part of the country, without being weird about it? Because if we're honest, we find it really difficult uh, to do this. We're facing greater opposition and sometimes even open hostility toward our faith. So how on earth can we do as Jesus has called us and be witnesses of Jesus in the face, first of all, of our own fears, in the face of external opposition, in the face of skepticism and cynicism? Um, So yeah, we're living in a time when Christianity is not a popular topic, and talking about Jesus can be really uncomfortable So we're going to talk about why that is. As I see it, there are really a couple oppositions that we're facing. First of all, there's the spiritual opposition that Jesus felt. Even Jesus knew this spiritual opposition. And anyone who is sharing the good news of Jesus will always feel this. This has always been a thing. It's always been true because we have a spiritual enemy who doesn't really like people discovering Jesus. So in one sense... It's obvious that there'll be opposition. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We have a spiritual enemy. But on top of that layer of spiritual opposition, there's cultural opposition. So in this part of the the country where we live, in the most recent study that I found, when people were asked about the importance of religion in their life, of all 50 states, Maine ranked number 48. Bottom three, number 48, when it came to the importance of religion in my life. Only our New England neighbors ranked lower. Same when asked, do you believe in God? And that seems pretty basic, right? Because uh, like if, if, even if practicing your religion isn't that important to you, most people, we thought most people would still say, well, I believe in God, even though I don't really practice a religion, but not in Maine. And again, only our New England neighbors ranked lower, Maine's number 48, bottom three. When it comes to church attendance, we're right in the mix with our our New England neighbors, but we drop even lower to number 49 in the country, bottom two, behind only Vermont. Here's a quote by one of the study participants, and when I saw her name in in the article, I realized it's someone I met a few years ago when I was working at the Chamber of Commerce, so I I don't know her, but I met her. Here's what she said. She said, I don't consider myself to be a religious person. See if if you've heard this kind of thing from friends, family, co-workers. I don't consider myself to be a religious person. I consider myself to be a spiritual person. I think the reason for that is I wasn't raised with an organized religion, and I've never found one since my childhood anyway, even in any exploration that I've done that really resonated with me, that I could ascribe to all the ideals and principles and rules and regulations. She says, so for me, it's really more just about spirituality and humanity than subscribing to one theology or an organized religion. That's not that uncommon. Behind those statistics, there's a cultural thing going on 
that makes sharing our faith and talking about Jesus even more difficult. Because we're living, as you know, in a postmodern culture. You undoubtedly hear that term used in a lot of different kinds of settings. But here's what we mean by that. Postmodernism is essentially a late 20th century Western philosophy that's characterized by broad skepticism, subjectivism, and relativism. A general suspicion of reason, and which makes it very different from modernism, and an acute sensitivity to the role of ideology. I know it's a mouthful, so I put it on the screen for you to kind of track with. In postmodernism, people reject objective truth. And postmodernism isn't something that's coming, it's here. We're living in it. We've moved from objectivity to subjectivity, where we say things like, hey man, whatever works for you, you know, that's awesome, that, but it's not my truth, it can be your truth. If that's your truth, I'll just go find my own truth. Thank you very much, good for you. We've moved from authority to autonomy. We don't want experts telling us what to believe. And if you're wondering if we're there yet, do we need to look any further than our collective experience this past year, where people are, are largely and shockingly skeptical of experts like scientists and epidemiologists? Instead, of, instead they lean into the opinions of bloggers and YouTubers. YouTuber, it's unbelievable how many YouTube links I've been sent in the last year. And cable news talking heads, these have become the voices of influence. In a culture where science is elevated on one hand, there's a sense of distrust on the other hand when, it position, when people in positions of authority demonstrate trust in science. And if you think this is just a younger generation thing, it's not. Postmodernism has impacted all of us. We've moved away from evidence to experience. We want to see the world through our own custom-crafted lenses of self-discovery and autonomy, and we want to kind of slice and dice and pick and choose all the evidence to support our own agenda. We call it confirmation bias. And I'm not suggesting that every little detail about postmodernism is wrong, all right? Any more than I'm suggesting that the American, everything in the American experience before postmodernism was all right, all right? Here's the thing. We're not only living in a postmodern culture, we're living in a post-Christendom culture. And I've chosen my words very carefully here because um, I'm saying post, you hear post-Christian, but I'm just bucking that trend. I'm going to call it post-Christendom because I don't believe a culture can be Christian. Just me, it's a pet peeve of mine, those of you who know me. I don't believe music can be Christian. I don't believe movies can be Christian. I don't believe books or colleges or camps or schools can be Christian. I believe only human beings can be Christian, individual human beings. The dictionary may classify and does, classifies the word Christian as a noun and an adjective, but I just think as a Christian, that Christian makes a terrible adjective. So anyway, that's just my thoughts. To describe our culture as post-Christian begs the question, when exactly was our culture Christian? Okay? So that's my issue with calling us post-Christian. So then tell me, when were we Christian? There's never been... I don't even, first of all, I don't know what a Christian culture looks like. There's never been a Christian culture. Christendom, on the other hand, 
while there's a more complicated and layered definition, we would just simply define that as a culture where the majority of people are Christians, or maybe even in some cases in history where Christianity is the official language. The government has designated it as the official language. Can I just say that I don't, I don't see anywhere in Jesus' ministry where he calls us to make Christianity the official state religion. I don't see that anywhere in Jesus' call to us as a church. But that kind of happened. It's what happened in the early days of Christianity, of what we call Christendom, where the, the vision was government that upholds Christian values. And that might sound like a good idea, but here's what history would teach us, is that what happened with that is that Christian clergy came to hold all the political authority to the point where by the fourth century, when Christianity was made the official religion of the Roman Empire, and then eventually they, get the, they got the cart before the horse. And rather than their faith influencing the way they governed, what happened was their political ideals, whether congruent with Christian values or not, whether congruent with the teachings of Jesus or not, their political ideas were interpreted as equal to Christian values. That sounds eerily familiar. So, post-Christendom where the voices of Christians have moved from majority to minority, where the voices of Christians who maybe were once at the center of public discourse are now on the fringe and ridiculed and discounted and dismissed. There's deep opposition to religious structures where we don't even want to associate ourselves with maybe some, even some of us don't want to associate ourselves with some of the prominent evangelical spokespeople of the last 30, 40, 50 years because to do so, we just come across as judgmental, we come across as arrogant, we come across as closed-minded and condescending and holier than thou. Then, of course, there's the fear of rejection. We're talking about talking about Jesus without being weird. So there's a fear of rejection thing, and this is not new. This has been around forever. Uh, that just comes with being human. But there's this fear of damaging our reputation, right? To hear, oh my word, really? You believe that? I didn't realize you believed that. I thought you were scientific. I thought you were intellectual. I thought you were academic. I thought you were well-read. How can you believe in this kind of stuff? How can you? This is legend. It's myth. How do you believe in this? So we struggle with talking about our faith because we think in this cultural moment that people are so far away from Jesus, I have no idea how to help them find him. That people have no commonality with us. They're so far away and our old methodologies of introducing people to Jesus uh, do not work anymore. So we don't know what to do. We even wonder, like, I don't know if anything that we do at church on Sundays is really going to help my friends. They aren't going to get it. It's not going to connect. They're so far away. This experience is so foreign to their every day. I hope they come to Jesus, but I don't know how I can help. Here's something to think about. The Barna Group, who studies uh, religious trends, and, 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 and especially in the evangelical world, recently found this, that 47%, so let's just say half, of millennial Christians. So remember, whatever, when I said millennial, I know a lot of you just had this Thing pop into your head. Set that aside because it's probably not accurate, okay? Depending on how old you are, uh, millennials aren't necessarily who you think they are, okay? Right, because millennials are not someone of a certain age. They're a generation, okay? So, like, you didn't stop being a baby boomer once the next generation came along. You're always, once you're a baby boomer, you're always a baby boomer, 
all right? So millennials, uh, they aren't the youngest people in our church. I just want to make sure we know that. They're not the youngest people in our church. They're not the youngest people in our community, in our culture. Millennials were born between 1981 and 1998. So millennials are 23 to 40, okay? So nearly half of millennial Christians struggle with the idea of telling people about Jesus that maybe in a tolerant, pluralistic, postmodern culture, we shouldn't even be doing that. We shouldn't be trying to evangelize people. They struggle with that idea, that there are even more uh, that they're, they're more comfortable uh, with sharing the idea with the idea of sharing our faith with someone who doesn't uh, subscribe to any faith at all than trying to convert someone from another faith to Christianity. Here's why I want to talk about this: because love compels us to tell others about Jesus. That's what love compels us to do. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. So have we, so have I, so have you. So what does this mean for us? Like not to shrink back, not to retreat, but to actually kind of press in to this calling on our lives as individuals and as a church to bring the good news to those who don't know Jesus. What's that mean for us? I want to start by looking at the theology of this, the theology of what we call evangelism, all right? Like why on earth are we called to tell people about Jesus? Uh, let's look at the, uh, I want to look at a story in the life of the Apostle Paul where he's bringing the gospel to um, a city that was extremely hostile, all right? This is in Acts chapter 16, uh, and I'm going to start at verse 6. A little bit of uh, geography in here. So, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia, which I know you're planning to take your next cruise there, because the Holy Spirit, actually pretty awesome, but because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. They don't elaborate on what that looks like. So instead, then they went on to Mysia, to the seaport of Troas. So here's my first observation. You're like, what is that? Here's my first observation. On this journey of talking about our faith, the Holy Spirit will lead you as you commit to this calling of telling others about Jesus. That we can be confident of. I don't know about you, but I find it quite daunting to think about how on earth are we going to see Ellsworth and all the surrounding towns that we live in, in Hancock County, in the state of Maine, how on earth are we going to see people come to Jesus? There's so many challenges. There's so much opposition. There's too many cultural faux pas to avoid. So what do we do? Like, do we do better production on Sunday, slicker show, better social media strategy? What do we do? And what should we, here's a question, what should we stop doing? All that's kind of overwhelming and it sometimes freezes us. The Apostle Paul had a plan, uh, which I appreciate about him, but he had a plan to reach Asia Minor and Europe for the gospel. But the heart of his plan, listen, was being dependent on where the Holy Spirit wanted him to go and what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do. See, the Holy Spirit is not daunted by opposition. He's not surprised looking at statistics and like, oh my word, have you seen the data on Maine? How did this happen? What are we going to do? He's not surprised. And I'm not saying this... Um, kind of widespread abandonment of biblical truth is part of his plan, but he knows about it. He knows the vision that he has for us, for believers in down east Maine, for churches in this community, for his church. Paul's on this missionary journey, and he's listening to the Holy Spirit, 
And the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit says, don't go there, they don't go. When the Holy Spirit says, go here, they go. And when we as a church, as a body of Jesus followers, commit to, we're going to reach our community with the good news of the love of Jesus, it begins with saying, Holy Spirit, show us what to do. Show us what to do, where to do it, how to do it. In your workplace, Holy Spirit, show me what to do. Show me how to have these conversations. In your family, Holy Spirit, show me what to do. And as you're listening to the nudges of the Holy Spirit, you'll hear things like pray for that person, text some encouragement to that person, invite that person out for coffee and conversation, invite them to your small group. And before you know it, you see that telling others about the love of Jesus is primarily an adventure of following the Holy Spirit. That's what it really is. So are we paying attention to the nudging of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Verse 9 of Acts 16. That night Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Like out of nowhere, the Holy Spirit says, I want to give you a glimpse into what it's like not to know Jesus. Before him was a man from Greece who would have appeared sophisticated, who would have been educated, who would have looked like he had it all together. He was in a culture where people were living the good life. Sound familiar? And yet this man was doing something that was opposite of what everyone thought he would be happening. He's begging Paul for help. He's begging for his help. And in this vision, the Holy Spirit was giving Paul a burden, listen, a burden for the people of Macedonia. He could have looked at Macedonia and said, God, why are you showing me this? I mean, they have it together. Like Philippi is like this. It, it's, in the, it's a Roman colony. It's the elite of the cities in this area. It's wealthy. It's cosmopolitan. These people are the envy of every other city in this whole region. And yet God says, but I want, to, yeah, whatever, but I want you to hear what I hear. I want you to hear the cries of those who don't know me. Even though they look like they have it all together. Even though they seem to be quite content with their pursuit of their own happiness, I want you to hear what I hear every day. And the next verse is simply this, verse 10. <laughs> so we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do the same thing for us in Ellsworth and Hancock County to break our hearts for those who don't know the love of Jesus. One thing we need to continue to pray for and to never stop praying for at faith, is that faith community, that those of us who call faith community our church, that we would always say, Jesus, never let our hearts grow cold to the cries of those who don't know Jesus. The people in our community that we do life with, let's look beneath the veneer of the good life and hear the cries of pain. Oh, then the Holy Spirit does something else. And we're not going to take the time to read the whole story. I just want to fly over it here. But to read the rest of this chapter, it's incredible. There are three people uh, who come to know Jesus in Philippi, and, uh, and they each come to Christ in a different way. The first person that's mentioned is Lydia. And you may have heard of Lydia. If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably heard the story of Lydia. She's the first convert to Christianity in Europe. She's a wealthy businesswoman who came to Jesus because Paul explained the gospel to her. This is really important. He answered, he heard and answered her questions. He helped her through her intellectual obstacles. 
we need to respect people's questions about our faith, right? We need to respect their doubts. We need to respect their concerns. The Holy Spirit in Acts 16 uses Paul's words, maybe gave Paul words. I'm not really exactly sure how that works, but he does the same for us. The next person received Jesus in a totally different way. Paul meets this slave girl who's oppressed by a demon, and uh, she was socially and spiritually so oppressed that no apologetic conversation about the whys and these are the deals, this is the theology, this is the doctrine, this is what we believe, nothing about the historical evidence of the resurrection, none of that is ever, not opening a book, that's not going to help, none of that's going to reach this girl. What she needed was deliverance. What she needed was a miracle. And so Paul says, in the name of Jesus, come out, and she's set free. And Paul, and I don't know exactly what that looked like, uh, but all I know is that Paul was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do something that he never could have done on his own. The point is, we need to lean into that power of the Holy Spirit to use us to do things that we are unable to do on our own. So this, then there's another person who comes to know Jesus. So as a result of their involvement with this demon-possessed girl, and there's more details to the story, you can read it in Acts 16, but and, and the, their involvement and their part of her delivery from this, this demonic oppression, Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. And it wasn't expressly uh, against the law to cast a demon out of someone, but they found a reason to lock these guys up. And the jailer, who was most likely a former Roman soldier, was told in no uncertain terms, if, if they escape this is going to cost you your life. Not just your job, your life, all right? So he's like, okay, 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 I got, I got the message. Don't worry about it. So he locks them up in the inner jail in a dungeon with stocks because they weren't getting out on his watch. So he secures the dungeon, secures the stocks, secures the dungeon, locks the inside door, the other doors, the outside door, goes home for the night. And then there's an earthquake in the middle of the night. And I don't know if this is a common thing or not, the doors fly open, the stocks broke apart, the jailer wakes up, assumes that Paul and Silas had left, right? Which is what I would have done. I don't know about you. I would have been out of there. I'm not hanging around. And the jailer's like, oh, are you kidding me? Just my luck, an earthquake tonight. Are you kidding me? I'm going to die. I'm going to get executed for letting these guys go free, and it wasn't even my fault. So the jailer the story says the jailer gets his sword and he's about to kill himself because he didn't want to go through the shame of a public execution and take his family through that. And it's in that moment that he experienced something that was more dramatic than the earthquake and more dramatic than anything he'd ever experienced. Paul looks up and looks at the jailer, saw that he's about to kill himself. But Paul, unlike us probably, didn't see it as an opportunity to go free. He saw it as an opportunity to love his enemy Paul stayed to love his enemy. And that kind of love rocked this man's world. And his reaction is, what must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to have that kind of love? Because it's only the Holy Spirit who can give us that kind of love. The power of love in a context like ours will disorient. It'll surprise people. It'll surprise them to the point where they'll think, wait a minute, wait, wait. Maybe there's something about Jesus that I didn't realize. And Paul, empowered by the Holy Spirit, saw the, the gospel break into a culture that was far more hostile than Hancock County because he's led by the Spirit. He's empowered by the Spirit. He was burdened to not give up to see the lost come to Christ. 
So he taps into this simple truth that our priority and our passion and our purpose is the same as Jesus, to bring the good news to the lost, to bring the love of Jesus to our community. How do we do that? Because that's the theology. That all sounds great, and we can all check the box. Yep, with you on that talk. Good, good theology. But how on earth do we do this? <clears throat> I believe we all want our friends and family and coworkers and neighbors to come to know Jesus. I believe that's your heart's desire. I just think we're petrified. And I think we're afraid because we don't know what to do. We don't know how to talk about Jesus in a way that's not going to kill our relationships. So in other words, the question that we have is, is there a way to talk about Jesus that isn't pushy, that doesn't infringe on someone's autonomy, that isn't super awkward or preachy or disrespectful or judgy or arrogant or unkind or social suicide, or that doesn't leave us coming off as just plain weird, like, because isn't that really the barrier? We want our friends to come to Jesus, we just don't know how to help them. And I think the reason, what, our reason for that is because most of our methodology is out of date. That's why I started with the statistics that I, that I did, because we're operating in a world that, uh, we're bringing methodology into a world that isn't the world that, from a world that we don't live in anymore. Just in the last 60 or 70 years in evangelism, see, in the 50s, uh, we had a culture that was generally open to Christianity that they, I'm not saying it's a Christian culture, I'm just saying generally open to Christianity. Um, they accepted the basic, people accepted the basic premise of Christianity, whether or not we lived out the values of the kingdom of God, that's clearly, I was going to say debatable, but it really isn't. But at the very least, culturally, we were generally open uh, to Christianity. And how we actually saw people come to Jesus, for the most part, was through what we call uh, convictional moments or convictional experiences. And there were some amazing anointed preachers, like Billy Graham, who would gather thousands of people into stadiums all around the world, and they'd bring us to this like convictional moment, and we'd be faced with this question, where am I going to go when I die? And we were pressed to answer that question, and you'd come to realize, well, I can't put this off any longer. And people by the hundreds would respond to what we called these convictional moments and make professions of faith. And it was all good. But time moved on from there, and culture moved on from there, and in the 70s and 80s with modernism coming into its own, and people are acknowledging, hey, church is kind of boring. I don't really think I need this in my life. Uh, it's not really adding much value to my life, and where's the evidence for all this anyway? Like, how do I know uh, Jesus is true and Santa Claus is false? Like, how do I really know that? Like, where's the evidence? And at the same time, our, while that's shifting, our world is getting smaller, and multiculturalism started to boom, and people started to become more and more aware of other their religions. And they started to ask questions out loud that they'd only ever asked in their mind, like, why are they wrong and Jesus is right? Like, where's the evidence? And that gave rise to a whole new kind of apologetics, kind of for the everyman. So really good books started popping up, like Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I hope you've read it. Or Lee Strobel's A Case for Christ. Really, really helpful books for sure. But guess what? We're no longer in that territory. We're living with a whole new set of obstacles for people to explore Jesus. Think about it. Even since we launched this church in 1997, this is a new day since then. The methodology that might have been effective even 24 years ago isn't going to cut it today. 
So we need to be willing to reevaluate our approaches and adapt our methods to these, uh, so that these unchanging truths, okay, the truths don't change. But so these unchanging truths then will find a home in the hearts and minds of the people that we're doing life with and that we love so much. Because there was a time not so long ago that when people were struggling, maybe the wheels are coming off, you know, and uh, their lives are kind of falling apart and they, whatever that looked like in their lives, maybe it was a marriage thing, a family thing, a health thing, a job thing, a financial thing, whatever, and they felt like, I, what I really need is to make a, a spiritual connection, they'd show up at church. They would explore what the church had to offer. They had a pretty good idea that church would steer them to Jesus. Today, the church doesn't even register as a place to find help, as a place to find support, as a place to find meaning, and a place to find peace. So we admit it, there's all these barriers in the way. You know, like, don't tell me what to believe. I want to find out what works for me. And, you know, I'll, I want to discover it. I don't want to be told. Christianity is intolerant and judgmental and intertwined with politics and all of this baggage that comes with what people think. So the question is, what do we do in this moment? I want to suggest just a couple things and then uh, we'll probably continue the conversation on another Sunday. A couple simple things that, and you're going to be like, I sat here this whole time and waited for this, but just hang with me. A couple things that aren't awkward, that aren't pushy, that aren't judgmental, that aren't detrimental to our relationships. First of all, love. Love your community. Love your coworkers. Love your neighbors. Love your extended family. Love them like Paul loved the jailer in Acts 16. Love them in such a way that you disorient them with their perceptions of what Christians are where maybe they get a sense of Jesus for the first time. Not hypocrisy, not judgment, not condescension. Because I think we can do this, right? I think we can. I have confidence in you. I think we can do this. To, to embrace this idea that, you know what, we're going to change how the people in our lives feel about Jesus. In my family, in my workplace, in my friendships, in my community, they may not believe, they may not want to follow him right away, but we're going to change, at the very least, what they think Jesus is like. Like, maybe you're the first Christian that your coworker likes as a person. Start there. Why is that? Because you love them, because you're serving them, because you're encouraging them, because you're not judging them, you're not gossiping, because you have integrity. Did you know that in all the sociological research around how people come to Jesus, it almost always begins with trusting a Christian? Because in our post-Christendom, postmodern culture, people tend to not trust Christians. And I get it. But love can get your unbelieving family and friends and coworkers and neighbors to turn around and at least acknowledge, huh, that's different. You're different. There's all this stuff in the way. I got my questions. My list is this long. I got hurdles this high. And I recognize that that's where the real dilemma comes because we don't know what to do with that. And the old methodologies are old methodologies that are not effective in a new reality because the old mindsets and the old presuppositions about Christianity are gone. This isn't about bringing people to a church service 
or to some evangelistic event designed to lead everyone to a convictional moment at the end or to bring some people to a church service, listening to some helpful teaching, listening to some music that might speak to their hearts, being in the company of some good people. Listen, all of that works for some people. That's one of the reasons we do what we do. But a lot of our friends and coworkers are too far removed from even that, and they don't identify with this experience. So maybe you're wondering, so Todd, are you, depending on your church story, you're like, so are you talking about friendship evangelism? Because we used to hear that talked about in the church a few years ago, and it was all good. But here's a challenge with that. Here's a challenge with that. I kind of am, but here's our challenge. We've become so superficial, so dependent on digital connections. Our conversations are so surface. We don't, just don't ever get to the, the depth of friendship where we can talk about the real stuff anymore. Like, We've forgotten how to do that. We've gotten so out of the habit of developing meaningful friendships. Like, when was the last time you invited a coworker out for coffee or over to your house for dinner? I'm not even that old. I'm really not. And I remember when families spent time with other families in their homes. I remember when people spent time in the homes of people they weren't related to. It's how we did relationships. And when we spend time in one another's homes, we create space and opportunity for relational intimacy where meaningful relationships can happen. But when all of our conversations are surface, they're all on Facebook or by text, it's only going to go so deep. So is it any wonder why all of our conversations are all about superficial things? I get, I, I get so tired of small talk. I'm not very good at it, and uh, I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. It's a waste of my time. And I get... Um, <laughs> That's awful. Um, you're not a waste of my time. Just talking about the weather is, how do we get, what I want to know is, how are you doing, really? But how do you get beyond the surface talk? <laughs> how do you, I'm doing better if it wasn't so hot or whatever, if the black flies weren't, whatever. How do you get beyond the surface talk about the weather and the black flies and what kind of coffee you're drinking this week and what you're watching on Netflix? How do you get beyond that? I have a suggestion for that. Just a suggestion. Don't tune me out yet, okay? Just hang with me all the way. Those of you who know me know exactly what I'm going to say. Get in a small group. Make sure you're always deeply connected in a small group. I believe we saw the value of small group yesterday in this place. Make sure you're always deeply connected in a small group. And here's the deal. You're like, well, there's not a small group I fit in. Start one. That sounds a little bit smart. It's just the way I'm wired. (laughs) But I mean it. If you can't find a small group that fits your personality, your schedule, your availability, whatever, your interests, start one. Start a small group. Invite your people. Be deeply connected in a meaningful biblical community. Then love your unchurched and unbelieving postmodern family and friends and coworkers and neighbors and keep loving them until you've earned their trust. Then invite them to come hang out with your small group peeps. Yes, I said peeps. (laughs) You're like, but I'm not in a small group. I'll just invite them on Sunday. That's fine. That's fine. Like, of course that's fine. 
But just know that's putting a lot of pressure on those of us who are responsible for crafting and creating this experience in this environment from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock on Sunday. It raises the bar so high that we're going to rarely reach it. Because all at once in an hour or so, just put yourself in our shoes, we're supposed to create an experience where the churchiest among us can sing songs that bring us into close communion with God while at the same time not causing our unchurched friends to totally freak out by the emotions they might experience with that. And we're supposed to craft and deliver a sermon that articulates the finer points of biblical prophecy and the doctrine of the Trinity and some deep exegesis of even the most unfamiliar texts and offer something helpful to my coworker that you brought to church who's just going through a rough time, and definitely a moment where they can pray a prayer and accept Jesus. If you're willing to spend all day here on Sunday, we can do all that. This is why I'm saying be in a small group to the point where it's just a way that you do life. And then... When the time is right, when the relationship is established, invite your unchurched, unbelieving friends to experience the community that you found in your group. This doesn't happen. That community doesn't happen by attending a group three times, by the way. You've got to invest in it for the long haul. This, and, and this isn't about a moment. This is about a journey. And the journey needs to be respected. And those who aren't in yet, they just need to experience the love of a community of Christians because they probably aren't expecting that. They need to be listened to, not preached at. This is the messy, organic journey of this adventure of following the Holy Spirit into bringing people to Jesus. And I'm confident that experiencing biblical community, you know what I mean by that, right? Biblical community, uh, all the one another's in the New Testament, the love one another, accept one another, honor one another, serve one another, encourage one another. I'm confident that experiencing biblical community is the way to see a friend go on a journey that leads them towards Jesus. And I think it's a journey they might actually enjoy. So here's the thing about small groups as a means of evangelism. As much as we might love our Sunday morning gathering and all that goes with it, this this is not normal for unchurched postmodern people. Hanging, being with a bunch of people, staring at a screen, singing lyrics together is not a normal experience. But hanging out with a few friends in in someone's home, or I would say even in a circle in a room at a church, it's not that out of the norm. So do you see how this could be disarming? To say, oh, hey, I get together with some friends every week, a couple times a month. We talk about life. We talk about spirituality. Uh, I find a ton of support there. Uh, I don't know where I'd be without them. We're all just exploring our beliefs. There's no commitment. There's no judgment. You should come with me and check it out. Think about this. More and more, the people that you really want to invite to church with you and bring with you on Sunday mornings, chances are they've never stepped foot into a church into a church building. We used to say maybe for a funeral, but that is more and more not even the case. On top of that, the idea that this is foreign, they would expect that church would be a very insider experience. And, and Christians, of course, are judgmental, and chances are they've never met a Christian that they actually liked. And before they ever start to listen to anything we have to say, they're going to decide whether they even like us. 
whether they think they can trust us, whether we really have their best interests at heart. It can happen on Sunday mornings, but it's a lot more likely and a lot more natural in the community of a small group. See, we tend to think that if we can just convince them to believe the right things, then they'll accept Jesus and they'll become Christians and it'll all be good. There, there may have been a time, even in our lifetimes, where that would have been more likely, but in this moment, long before our friends get to the believing part, they want to know, am I being judged? Am I being looked down on because I'm not good enough? Am I a project or do they really care about me? There are people all over our communities and in our families and in our, in our neighborhoods and in the places where we work who are desperate to know the love of Jesus. Everything looks great on the outside, just like the guy, the Macedonian. Surrounded by intellect and academia and a global, kind of a global worldview, whatever that was at that time, and affluence and crying for help. Let's pray that God would do for us what He did for Paul in that vision and break our hearts for them. Because when our hearts break for the unbelieving, unchurched people that we do life with, then we're going to do whatever we can. We're going to change our approach. We'll set aside our preferences about what we want to experience in the church. We're going to, our tendency, see, is to be so insider-focused, keeping church people happy. But don't we want to join with the Holy Spirit in loving our community? Isn't that what we really want to be? So let's bring the love of Jesus to those who desperately need to know their Heavenly Father. Let's not keep that to ourselves. The band's going to come, and as they come, I'm going to pray. Did you join me? Heavenly Father, thank you that somewhere along the way, we, so many of us experienced the love of Jesus. Whether that was a family member, a parent, a grandparent, a Sunday school teacher, a children's ministry worker, someone sitting in a circle with us. Thank you that we know what it is to experience the love of Jesus. Heavenly Father, break our hearts for those who appear to have it all together but are hurting and questioning, skeptical, maybe carrying scars from a previous church experience, from their interactions with Christians in the past. Help us to own that where we've been responsible. Help us to love others well. God, I believe our love, when it's, a, when it's your love expressed, I believe that love can be a disarming force. We want to play a part in helping others into a relationship with you. We pray that you use us in that way for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.